Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Alice Rutkowski. Alice is the chair and associate professor of English at SUNY Geneseo. Got it wrong. <laughs> she received her PhD from the University of Virginia and became a member of the Geneseo faculty in 2003. She often teaches the courses Literature and the Civil War, the Queer 19th Century, Feminism and Pornography, among others. Her research centers on the Civil War and Reconstruction, as well as queer theory and trans politics. If you're thinking she sounds like the exact right guest for this show, you're correct. Alice and I connected because she wrote a fabulous essay about the little known, and we'll talk about why it's little known, Alcott short story Enigmas and trans feeling in the 19th century and in this particular story. So today we are going to talk completely about enigmas. It will become your new favorite Alcott work. Alice, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you so much for having me. Last fall, a student of mine actually came up to me after I taught this story and told me about your podcast. So I couldn't be more excited that we are intersecting in this way. That's fabulous. So word of mouth. Thank you. We appreciate it. <laughs> Alice, what's your relationship to Little Women? I So I feel like my story is pretty similar to a lot of your other guests. I can't remember not ever having read it. I just always seems to have been with me. I'm also one of those people that somehow my edition was only volume one. And so yes. I, I think yeah. it was in high school where someone said something like, oh, and then Beth dies. And I said, oh, my God, what do you mean <laughs> Beth dies? No, she got better. So <laughs> I came onto the second volume a little bit late. Yeah. And then finally, I worked in, in college. I worked with a historian named Sarah Elbert, and she wrote a biography of Louisa May Alcott called Hunger for Home. Ooh. And she's a cultural historian. And that was the kind of first New, newish biography about Alcott by a cultural historian. I did my undergrad thesis on Alcott, and then I went on and became a specialist in 19th century American women writers. So amazing. Yeah, it's the ideal trajectory. You have no idea how common the I only read the abridged version of the first half is, and people are just shocked when they learn that Beth didn't make it. That seems to be a very, very common experience, although yeah. not everyone goes on to make <laughs> the 19th century and the work, the literature of the 19th century, their bread and butter as you did. So Alice, now which March sister are you? So I know you ask everyone this, and I thought about this a lot. So mostly I'm Joe, right? Mm -hmm. Oppositional, I'm loud, I'm a writer. <laughs> but I have to say, the other day I listened to your episode on the Meg Goes to Vanity Fair chapter, and oh, yeah. I actually think there's a little piece of me that's Meg, and I don't think I yeah. realized how traumatized I was by that chapter. Yeah. <laughs> As a girl, I absolutely I was not thinking forward to marriage and motherhood. That wasn't something at the time I was interested in at all. But I did really, I was an older, I was the oldest sister. And I really did and still do really like pretty dresses. And the way that's treated by that chapter, right? Femininity is kind of artificial and vapid and unserious. <laughs> yeah. So your, your all's analysis of that I thought was great. Yeah. I was very grateful that Jaya, Jaya was able to come on and just give such a good analysis because that is a tricky chapter. That is not a kind chapter to Meg. It's sort of for, for as much as Little Women is lauded as a feminist text, that chapter perhaps not so much. <laughs> so I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah. And I can... We talk often about people being a Joe Sun and a Meg Moon, like many people are combinations <laughs> of the two. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So that works for you. Now, Alice, today we are completely here to talk about enigmas and your article, Louisa May Alcott's Enigmas, Trans Feeling in the 19th Century. So what is this short story? Tell me more. I mean, I know, but <laughs> oh, tell yeah, them yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. 
So I'll try and keep it really brief because I have a feeling you have lots of specific questions, right? So in t- if we're thinking in terms of genre, we would put this in Alcott's quote unquote sensation stories, or she called the Blood and yeah. Thunder Tales. It was published in May of 1864. And so in the timeline, in case folks don't know, that puts her- it after her service in the Civil War as a nurse, but before she publishes Little Women. And I think that timeline's important. Before I quickly summarize the plot, the other interesting thing about the story is that it's hidden in plain sight, meaning Mm -hmm. she wrote it under her own name. I have lots of theories about why this is the case, but the story isn't in any of those big anthologies of the pseudonymous and anonymous thrillers. And those those story collections are the things in kind of the 1980s that kick off this Alcott renaissance in scholarship where not only does Little Women start getting looked at more seriously, but for so long, she'd been thought about only as a children's writer and particularly a writer for girls. And so the pseudonymous stories sort of change all that. But this story was never part of that conversation. So roughly speaking, the plot, she sets it in what seems to be England, which we can talk about if you're interested in. And it's told in a first-person narrative perspective by a male narrator named Clyde. And he basically gets picked up at a local public library for this spying job where he's hired by this mysterious man who says, I'm going to pay you to spy at this house. And so Clyde goes to this sort of big manor house in the country And he shows up and says, I'm here for the job. And so it it appears that he's been hired as a copyist for this family. The family doesn't seem to know that he's a spy for this mysterious other person. He's hired to copy a manuscript that originally he thinks the man of the house, Bernard Noel, has written. It turns out that Bernard Noel is actually translating from Italian, something the dad wrote. It's very convoluted. Lots of strange things go on in the house that the reader absolutely should be suspicious about. And Clyde has no idea. He is a horrible (laughs) detective, a horrible spy, and fundamentally a very unreliable narrator. It sort of seems like he falls in love with Noel, or at least desires Bernard Noel. Mm -hmm. And then there's this crazy scene at the end where Clyde is perched in a tree looking through a window And supposedly discovers, and you can't see my scare quotes because this is an audio medium, but -hmm. supposedly discovers the truth of Bernard Noel's identity. He's actually (laughs) a woman. She and her sister and her dad are political refugees from Italy and can't believe it, but he's so happy that Bernard is actually Monica because now it means he's straight but then he falls asleep on his spying reports. I know. He literally falls asleep, allegedly, this contrivance of Alcott's on the manuscript that he's written, and he wakes up, and there's a note with a dagger through it that basically says, you betrayed us. You'll never hear from us ever again. And then Clyde is like, I was haunted for the rest of my life. I will never solve these enigmas. (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, when I read this the first time, My jaw was on the floor. It takes a lot of the themes that we talk about on this podcast and makes them blazingly explicit. It's so much fun. I don't always enjoy Alcott's sensation fiction. I think they are effortful a lot of the time. They kind of show... You you actually say something really interesting in your essay. You're like, I don't think that it's helpful to think of any of the genres that she wrote in as being more enjoyable than the other. There's a degree to which all of her writing was economic. And I I certainly think that some of these newly discovered thrillers, you're like, she very much wrote this for a paycheck. She was not having fun, right? But this one, I think it seems to me that her heart is in it more. It flows better than a lot of these other stories. And I will say, you said that it's not in any of these thriller anthologies. I did find it in a thriller anthology in the anthology A Whisper in the Dark, 12 Thrilling Tales by Louise May Alcott. That was edited by Stefan Jim. I'm sorry, I'm not going to get his name right, but it's a (laughs) Barnes and Noble publication. So I did read it in at least that one collection, but you're right. It's left out of the, you know, in the 1980s when there was this discovery of the A.M. Barnard stories, and we'll get back to Barnard, Barnard, (laughs) you know, these pseudonymous thrillers this was sort of left out because she had written this as L.M. Alcott. This was not hiding. So, my God, Alice, where do we begin with this? 
I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? So let's let's start at A.M. Barnard and Bernard Noel. So the figure of Bernard Noel is the what we might say transmasculine figure at the heart of this story. He's a you know a woman fleeing Italy as a political refugee, posing as a man because for circumstances that are not ever really explained, when she was a child, she also disguised herself for several years as a boy and enjoyed it and was like, well, since I have all this <laughs> previous experience disguising myself as a boy, I might as well disguise myself as a young man now. And the name given to this character, who is not just a man, but an extremely attractive man, our cis male narrator, you know, quote unquote, and all of that, Clyde is just incredibly drawn to and attracted to Bernard. It's like, I, I was analyzing his dress as though he were a woman and he had a comely mouth. <laughs> it's very, it's, we're really, Bernard is a very attractive yeah, and the figure. only thing I was, it, Clyde actually says, as if I were a woman. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. As if I yeah, were a woman. Right. But, I mean, because that's what's so interesting. Mm-hmm. In addition to this transmasculine character, who again, I genuinely read, I mean, so the yeah. terminology of trans man would not have been available to Alcott, but there are tons of details that suggest that Alcott is suggesting this person is not acting as a man or performing <laughs> as a man or disguised as a man. He is a yeah. man. But yeah. that there's so much transness in the text that mm-hmm. it's almost contagious, that there are times yeah. when Clyde, who seems relatively comfortable in cis masculinity, yeah. suddenly, what if I was a woman? Can this yeah. really interesting? Yeah, he's like, my attraction to this man makes me a woman, which we can read as, is he, is that a trans femininity on his part? Or is he just like, well, since I'm attracted to this man, I right. must be a woman. Right, <laughs> like, right. Is, it- is it homosexual panic? Yeah. Yeah. And truly, so Bernard is this fetishized almost weight. You know, he's this stripling. He looks incredibly young and youthful and hot. He's that this yeah. ideal twink, which yeah. is incredibly funny that this is the figure that Alcott goes for. But to the character of this, I, you know, the platonic twink, right? <laughs> Alcott gives the name Bernard Noel. And then for Alcott's own pseudonym, Alcott chooses A.M. Barnard. I know. Yeah. So what are we to make of that? <laughs> yeah, I've been trying. I In the article, I try to be really careful not to say, right? This is so mm-hmm. clearly wish fulfillment for Alcott it's really hard not to do that so much. There's so much overlap between her and this character. There's also seems like a lot of, again, kind of fantasies about the way she wished her life could be, right? The sort of anxieties about class, the -hmm. ideal of being from the nobility as solving all these money problems she and her family always have. She's got this really noble father who seems to actually be supporting the family yep. who recognizes Bernard's masculinity in some ways. Mm-hmm. We haven't even talked about that. This character marries his sister in the story, <laughs> which, you know, I know you, you've talked a lot on the podcast about the bit where Joe says, I want to marry Meg to keep her safe in the family. And so this character actually does that all as a ploy to keep Clyde from sniffing out that this is a ruse. <laughs> I forgot your question, but that was all my... <laughs> I'm just staring off into space because this story Things is like so <laughs> fuck wild. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So let's, because you've led us there, let's talk about Bernard. I think, you know, I think we've discussed, there's this similarity between A.M. Barnard and Bernard Noel, this idealized twink figure. But you've led us there, so let's get into it. Bernard Noel marries his sister. Now, how, not literally, pretends to be married to his sister. Sorry, yes. Good clarification. To... Throw Clyde off the scent, maybe? or Yeah, because up to this point, this sister has been disguising herself as this blind French madam. And it's not a role that the sister can keep up particularly mm. well. So basically, they intru- they reintroduce the sister to Clyde in a new guise, which is just, this is my sister, no, sorry. This no, is this just is like my, my wife. This is my wife. This is my <laughs> wife. I just got married. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Her name is Hortense. She's an orphan. 
<laughs> and this is the sister. She's no longer wearing any disguise. She's just like, I'm more tense and I'm an orphan, right? So it's a little bit easier for her to disguise herself because she's not wearing a wig. She's not pretending to be blind. We have some other thoughts about blindness in Alcott's work in an episode with Andrew Leland, which should be out by the time this is out. So if you're interested in that, go check that out. But even before the marriage, there's a scene where you know, peeping Tom Clyde is staring through a window looking at, they don't know that they're being observed. Bernard and his sister don't know that they're being observed in this moment. And Bernard is, we said, sprawled on a couch in a Turk in Turkish slippers and a dressing gown. And it's interesting that even in this moment, Bernard doesn't come in and de-drag, right? Bernard yes. is in a dressing gown and slippers, yes. which you would think a dressing gown is kind of a flimsy garment. It would maybe expose more of a person's body, but he's Clyde thinks he's looking at a man here, right? And the sister is like dancing and singing for Bernard and they're eating from the same dish and they seem wrapped up in each other. So even before, this is before the wife conceit. Bernard is still in his disguise. The sister is not. She takes off her wig and becomes herself in her private chambers again. What I'm trying to get at here is both before and after the assumption of the wife disguise, they're sort of romantic with one another. <laughs> or they're very romantic with another. They really sell it to yeah. Clyde. Like Clyde is suspicious about what could possibly be going on between these two. And then he completely buys them as man and wife afterwards. <laughs> I mean, we I'm not to say the word incest here. What is yeah. happening? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think on your other episodes you've had you all yeah. and your guests have done a good job of talking about the part about marrying to keep the woman safe, which yeah, I think is yeah. a great reading, right? Alcott is really clear on marriages, a loss for women. The family loses <laughs> the woman. And also I was thinking about this because you've talked with a lot of guests about why she's not willing to have Joe marry Lori. But and I think there are lots of reasons. But also I think Alcott's really clear that even the attempt to queer marriage from the inside isn't going to work, right? Marriage is too, yeah, yeah. It's, it's too heteronormative. It's too patriarchal, just mm -hmm. two queer people getting married. And this, I don't know. I mean, there's resonances in contemporary mm -hmm. politics around this too, right? To what attempt, extent, you know, is marriage just always going to have this residue of, yeah. yeah. But then the other thing that I often think about, I don't know, I don't know how much you know about Melville, but there's this great article. So almost all the American romantics were basically gay. Everybody except Hawthorne. Yeah, I know. Everybody except Hawthorne was gay. And well, some I, would argue Hawthorne. I know that. I know that there are some Hawthorne Melville letters. Yeah. Spicy. Well, so Melville was absolutely in love with Hawthorne and Hawthorne wasn't mm. about it. So. Ooh, oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah. Because he dedicated Moby Dick to Hawthorne. But there's this great critical article that I use when I teach Melville by a queer studies scholar that suggests so that metaphors for kind of gayness or queerness in the 19th century sometimes substitute one taboo for another. So in Melville, this scholar, Caleb Crane, suggests that Melville uses cannibalism when what he mm. means is male desire. So it's just that it's not that they're the same yeah. thing, right? Or they're both sure, terrible. Sure. But his argument is that the in the 19th century, people actually did have a vocabulary to talk about cannibalism, right? P mm -hmm. Enough people got shipwrecked that it happened. People did not have a vocabulary to talk about male relationships in kind of an equitable way in the way we think about them now. And so they sort of sub in one for the other. And sometimes I wonder right. if Alcott's using incest in that way, right? So it's not oh, that. okay. Right. So that you sub yeah. one. So here's a taboo. I know these both think things are taboos. But I'm going to mm -hmm. sub in this one taboo incest, right, yeah. for this other one, which would either, right, be a woman, a sub someone designated female at birth desiring another woman or being the wrong gender or being gender nonconforming. Yeah. And that's, I think that makes a lot of sense because I, we see it used the same way in Little Women, right? It's kind of the only e explicit expression of Joe saying, let me think about being in a romantic relationship with a woman is I just wish I could marry Meg myself, and, which is... I've had, I've talked about this before on the podcast. When I cited that in an article, my editor was like, are we sure we should be saying that? Yeah. Joe wants to marry her sister. I'm like, well, I, it's just a bit, it's hard to know what to do with that. It's all, we also know that Alcott felt so uncomfortable socializing outside of the home generally, not often with young men. Alcott really seemed in her element there, but certainly among girls, among other young women, even among women as she became an older person. So her only vocabulary for real intimate closeness between women would have been sisterhood, right? right? So I think that's kind of the way that she's coming at this. But then 
that doesn't even under- get at why when Clarice, the sister, takes off her disguise at the end of the day, Bernard just leaves his on. Except for when the dad comes by at the end of the story. That's when. Right. And I mean, I guess that yeah. would be part of I feel like that. I didn't manage to get that detail in my article, but mm-hmm. that would be part of my evidence for this is mm-hmm. not a role that Bernard yeah. Noel is performing. It's not a disguise. Mm-hmm. It's who he is. And I teach this story all the time. And the students are just it's wild how modern <laughs> so much of it is. No. Right. So, yeah. like the, so the dad yeah. comes back into the scene and Noel presents as feminine. None mm-hmm. of my students need an explanation as to why that might be the case. Right. But Alcott does some really cool, leaves a lot of cool loopholes at the end of the story is, again, Clyde is suddenly like, oh my gosh, thank goodness it's a girl. I could see <laughs> in her face that she loved me back. Alcott never confirms that. So I think there's a way to read it right. in a conservative way, which is, mm-hmm. oh, thank goodness all these people are straight. <laughs> right. But there, there's all these loopholes, too, for the idea that the feminine expression actually might be the drag, right? Instead yeah, of, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's another really wonderful thesis by Mary Sheldon where she talks about Joe and says that for Joe, femininity is the cross dress. Yes. <laughs> Joe is more comfortable when she puts on these male clothes and plays these male parts in these stage shows. And I mean, exponentially more so for Bernard, because Bernard is actually living as a man, both publicly and privately for large parts of this story. And even when in this moment at the end of the story, when Bernard is revealed to be, quote unquote, Monica and born a woman, we hear that as a child posed as a boy, right? question mark, and enjoyed it and thought, now that I have to disguise myself again, I was so good at being a boy. Why don't I be a man? It's just natural to me. And the father in commending Monica for this bravery calls her my man-hearted girl. Yeah. Which is a yeah. beautiful and lovely and really moving expression. But of the same, as you were saying, like, this echoes these this understanding that Alcott had of herself as, you know, having a boy spirit under her bib and tucker, feeling as though I was a man, you know, put by some freak of nature into a woman's body. I've said that so many times in this podcast, but it's an echo, right? Yeah. My man-hearted girl. Yeah, and the childhood, again, supposed disguise of Monica as Bernard, they say, and I cried when I was forced to give it up. Yeah, yeah. But also, I just, I really like the stories. It's got a whole narrative of kind of non-conformity to transness, right? That sort of, to the extent that sometimes in popular culture, people even want to think trans in a binary way, like you're this and then you're that. And that's the only. So it's like, oh, it started when I was a kid. Oh, I found this was really comfortable when this happened. And I was dressed in a feminine way. And I realized I we had to disguise ourselves. I thought back to that. And then I tried it. And now I really like it's just it's got all the kind of steps in a way that's to me very psychologically. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen the Catherine Hepburn flop, Sylvia Scarlet? I have not. Okay. Because it's very similar to Enigmas. And in the same way that like this is sort of, I don't know how old this particular narrative, I don't know if these had become tropes at this point. Maybe you can shed some light on that. But Sylvia Scarlet is a father and a daughter are in trouble. And somehow the only situation, my, my friend Danny Lavery has this thing. It's like, father, I must bide my breasts. That's the solution to any crisis. <laughs> so in this Sylvia Scarlet film, Catherine Hepburn, who played Joe, naturally, the first and most iconic Joe, some would argue. Catherine Hepburn's solution is, well, we're in trouble, so I guess I just have to disguise myself as a man here. And takes on, you know, performing as a man and remains in this role for the rest of the film and has these romantic entanglements with men, with women. There's an actual, a woman kisses Catherine Hepburn as the male counterpart on the mouth. I think this was pre-code naturally. Yeah. And it flopped at the box office for, you know, I think maybe because it was a bit too open for the times and it didn't, Alcott kind of wraps everything up here with a neat bow, like, oh, Bernard is a woman. Clyde is like, well, now I know I have been so attracted to you. (laughs) And, And so it's ostensibly heterosexual at the end of the day. And I don't know that Sylvia Scarlet was quite as convincing, especially because Hepburn is also very forthright about, I have lived as a man. I thought I was the wrong sex, wanted to be called known as Jimmy as a boy. So I, what really what I'm getting at here is this is a narrative that kind of continues and echoes across time. And I would love to know, to what extent was this an established narrative that Alcott could play with 
at this point in literary history more broadly? That's a really good question. I've also written down the title of that movie. I'm going to watch that. Okay. (laughs) So I don't know specifically about the kind of father-daughter thing, (laughs) but certainly the women and girls have again, cross-dressed isn't quite the right word for all of these yeah. changes of expression. And I've, you've talked about this with other guests, I think, throughout history for all sorts of reasons, for safety, wanting access to male privilege, fighting in yeah. the Civil War, fighting in wars like Joan of Arc comes up a lot when I teach these kinds of classes. Mm-hmm. And actually, my students are most familiar with Mulan, actually. So oh, yeah, it, yeah. this goes across cultures. And there certainly were lots of precedents in 19th century lit around cross-dressing. I think they they tend to be more conventional in that it seems more like a woman cross-dressing for some sort of reason, but she's really yes, a woman. Yeah. And so I think that's what makes Alcott's a little bit different in this one. Right. Yeah. Because it's by the end of the story, we could Bernard in some ways remains Bernard. Yeah. There's no, he doesn't come to Clyde as Monica. No, nope. I'm in love with you. Right. It's <laughs> so and even in that way, it's different from the other story, short story by Alcott, My Mysterious Mademoiselle, which sort of plays the opposite way. It's a young man who's in trouble and is disguising himself as a beautiful woman. And the other man in the in this carriage that they're sharing is so taken with him. And it's like, I wanted to kiss this beautiful woman. And next morning, they both wake up and the woman has transformed into a man and is like, I was in disguise the whole time. Do you still want to kiss me? <laughs> and, so, and everyone has a big laugh. So even in that respect, there's not a comedic button on the end of this. You know, Clyde is sort of still feeling bereft about not being able to be with Bernard slash Monica. Bernard, who he's only ever known as Bernard, right? And is understanding his attraction to Bernard as actually being heterosexual. But I think another interesting question is like, what are we to make of Bernard's supposed attraction to Clyde? How do we read that? Yeah, I'm not totally sure. I mean, I often read the story as, I mean, I think Alcott's being a little slippery because it's (laughs) first person narration and Clyde is completely unreliable. I think we simply don't have access to what Bernard thinks. Mm -hmm. Like most of us want to think that the person we're into is responding to that. And we just don't really, the story at least doesn't provide evidence that Bernard feels one way or the other. That isn't to say he's not attracted, right? But just that it doesn't. Yeah. Well, I find, let me, I think, I don't have the exact quote with me. I'm sorry, but there's a part where Clarice is saying, we've had a guest here, Clyde. He's been very nice. And at that point, Bernard Bernard slash Monica says, yes, maybe too nice. And then at the end, when the father asked Bernard, do you have, Monica, do you have feelings for this Clyde person? We get this sort of bashful expression that to Clyde reveals everything. And it's right. <laughs> what's interesting here is I think this is something that you get at in your essay, the way that sexual orientation and gender identity are kind of collapsed into one another. So that, for instance, a woman cross-dressing as a man, that person is a lesbian, right? That's sort of, that's kind of- Because our vocabulary fails us, basically, right? right. We don't have, yeah. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts of the second sex, (laughs) you know, which, which is certainly required reading for anyone, but very much shows its age in important ways. There's a chapter on the lesbian in the second sex. And for a while, Simone de Beauvoir is talking about relationships between girls, relationships between women, how we can understand sexual attraction between women. And then just abruptly is like, oh, I've even heard of people cross-dressing and living as men for their entire lives. And one lesbian even had a penis fashioned out of rope. And isn't that curious? And why do these lesbians... I'm like, are we just... <laughs> Simone, <laughs> is lesbian the best word for that person, right? Right. So what I'm getting at with that point is this collapse of trans men into and lesbians into the same category is something that I think is just starting to be teased out and separated. And I think there's closeness, right, in trans masculine and lesbian communities. I think a lot of people sort of have one foot on either side of the divide. I don't think there's a hard and fast line, nor that there should be. But I think that just the way that those identities have been bound up in one another for so long, it can prevent people from understanding that actually trans masculinity 
can go along with attraction to men as well. There is a world in which Bernard Noel, the man, is attracted to Clyde, the man. And that's something that people have trouble with. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm super open to that. I Again, I, d- I guess I'm just yeah. wanting to preserve how slippery I think Alcott is on in Kant. In- yeah, yeah. So not that's not true, but that she's provided mm-hmm. evidence for both. Yes. Right. There's so many. Both that he's made it up <laughs> and that there might be, right? But mm-hmm. and, but then it's also tricky to figure out which is the more progressive reading, which is the more kind of reassuring oh, I- heteronormative reading. So I'm absolutely open to the idea that they're mm-hmm. both digging each other. <laughs> but I think it's kind of alluringly slippery. Well, the title, it, Enigmas, yeah. it, it but asks she just, for she multiple pre- readings. Yeah, she, just, she preserves deni- all the scary <laughs> queer things. She preserves <laughs> deniability about them, basically. Yeah. No, and it's, I mean, it's shocking that this got past the radar. Yeah. Well, maybe it's not so shocking. It got past the radar. I don't want to overstate because often what I run into is people saying women weren't allowed to write in the 19th century, they weren't allowed to work outside the home. And I have to be like, well, actually, that actually happened a fair bit, right? Well, and that's also a really raced and class, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. There were tons mm-hmm. of white working women. There were mm-hmm. absolutely black women working outside the mm-hmm. home, right? There were enslaved women in the South working outside yeah. the home. And I think you had an episode where you talked about Uncle Tom's Cabin, but that was yeah. the 1850s. And that was the only book that outsold Uncle Tom's Cabin in the 19th century is the Bible. Yeah. Which- so <laughs> there were. it's true yeah. that there were women who were starting to make writing a career, mm-hmm. but it's not as if there were tons of men who were American men who were able to yeah. do it yet either. It was really challenging. Yeah. And certainly, as you said, from a very early point, there were women who were writing for with huge economic success, right? Yes. I just did a course on Emily Dickinson and during one of our lectures, the professor was sort of explicitly like, so this was kind of a boom time for women writing poetry. And there were whole papers filled with women's poetry. And it was very different from Emily Dickinson's poetry. This was the form of the popular women's poetry of the day. This was the style. And then after that lecture in a tutorial, we were just discussing points and this guy in my class was like, well, you know, being the 1800s, women just couldn't write poetry. I'm like, were you listening? <laughs> it's so persistent. It digs in there. So anyway, this is a sensation story for sure. It gets at some very shocking content. It really, it doesn't tiptoe around queerness or cross-dressing or any of that. And though there is plausible deniability at the end, I don't know that that necessarily negates anything or makes less scandalous what comes before, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Because the, you know, a reader might guess that Bernard is a woman in disguise, but it's not by any means explicit up until the grand reveal, right? So what are we to make of the fact that Alcott published this under her own name? Just put it out there. I know. I can only guess. I I think you've read the journals too. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's nothing really explosive when she talks about this story in her journals. She's kind of mad that the newspaper hasn't paid her yet, but it's hard not to think about it autobiographically, right? This is something that she was happy to claim. She, You probably know, or your listeners might already know, she'd already was a little bit famous because Hospital Sketches has already been yeah. published. So it's before the big fame of Little Women, but she's mm-hmm. a little bit known. So it's hard not to think about it in terms of autobiography, right? That this was yeah. one that she was more willing to claim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I would tend to agree. I think she hadn't cemented a reputation quite yet as a children's author. So I don't know that there was necessarily conflict between those two audiences. And maybe off the dome, do you know, were the A.M. Barnard stories principally after Little Women when she sort of had a reputation to protect? Because I know that A Modern Mephistopheles was very much written under a pseudonym. She was like, when people find out that this horror story is me, the Little Women person, they're going to be so surprised because it's so different. So I think after the success of Little Women and Renown as a children's author, there was maybe more pressure to be like, okay, I have to keep kind of the dark, sexy, adult Turkish dressing gown open on my cross dress. That has to be in its own corner. I don't, that's, yeah, being child friendly is the one thing I can think. It wasn't a consideration at this point. 
Well, yeah, and uh, this is sort of responding to your question and changing a little bit. So, I mean, I think Alcott was somewhat sensitive to her reputation. I guess mm-hmm. I would remind listeners, it's much harder for people to look up old works in oh, a magazine, true. right? So yeah. the idea that someone's going to find the stories from Frank Leslie once Little Women has come out, that's going to, that's a much, would be a much harder task. Yeah. But then also Alcott's first biographer after she died did a lot mm-hmm. of this sanitizing. So partly yeah. it's Alcott worried about her own reputation, but also for people who are working on Alcott, I mean, this happens to a lot of figures It happened to Whitman a lot. Where people who worked on them are just like, oh, hey, this is this, you know, paragon of a person that was always this way and always wrote this thing. And so the kind of critical history of responses to Alcott were also really invested in hiding things that didn't fit. I completely agree. And I actually you you refer to Louisa May Alcott's first autobiographer, first, sorry, biographer. And that was Edna Dow Cheney, right? Yes. I have some bombshell info about Edna Dow Cheney for you. <laughs> <gasps> this is truly bombshell. So I don't know how to... <laughs> I have the journals of Louise May Alcott in front of me here. A more recent Alcott family biographer, Madeline Bedell, views the relationship between Edna Dow Cheney and Bronson Alcott as less naive than passionate on Bronson's part and describes the friendship as romance. It is definite that on August 29th, 1850, Bronson Alcott signed a letter to Edna Dow Cheney with a slightly mystifying remark, were I the unforgettable, I should be yours forever. When she came to write her reminiscences, Edna would dub Bronson Alcott the most charismatic of the transcendentalists, a man who could hardly have been what he was anywhere but in New England and who was no less the heir of Greece and Europe. So at least one Alcott biographer thinks that Edna Dow Cheney was romantically involved with Bronson Alcott, which could account for some of the scrubbing of the scandal outside of the first biography of Louisa May Alcott. And I think that's very juicy. I'm going to look more into that. This is just that's from the introduction of the journals of Louisa May Alcott, edited by Joel Meyerson and Daniel Sheely, with the introduction by Madeline B. Stern, who also discovered the A.M. Barnard. But I, I think that's juicy. What do you think? You know, now I think maybe I've read that before and forgotten it because it made me think of, I can't help but think of Emily Dickinson. I don't know if you her okay. first, her first. So, right. So she was in love yeah. with her sister-in-law, right? And the person <laughs> who edits Dickinson and sanitizes her stuff is <laughs> her brother's mistress. So this idea that there are these... And look, you know, I want everyone to be uh, happy. I don't know that monogamy <laughs> is the right way for everyone, but there's this interesting... So for these important 19th century American women writers, there's this Mm -hmm. weird industry of the side piece, like taking over the editing and sanitizing of the person anyway. Wow. I mean, that's a book all on its own, (laughs) the side piece in 19th century. (laughs) Yeah. So I think there's, and we could say this about any, even without the scandalous element of being the other woman, right? I think there's anytime a family is trying to preserve someone's legacy, there's sort of yeah. Image control is a factor, right? Even I'm thinking about the first publication of the diary of Anne Frank and Leo Frank was like adamant that Anne's writing about, you know, going through puberty and thinking about her crushes and sexual attractions. A lot of that just got scrubbed out of the first published edition of the diary of Anne Frank, right? So their image control is always at play. And Edna Dow Cheney, she did remove any mention of this story from the first publication of the journals. It was sort of swept to the side, but I don't understand why it's still so little known and little discussed in these conversations we have about Alcott's gender and sexuality, because it kind of seems like a smoking gun even more than Little Women. (laughs) It's very forthright. Yeah. I mean, one of the sort of smaller arguments I make earlier in my essay is that Mm -hmm. it's sort of not as fun because it wasn't secret and hidden. Right, which is ironic in its own way, right? That being hidden in plain sight wasn't because the process. So Madeline Stern, right, who was a Alcott fan, a rare book dealer, she put out all these anthologies again, which sort of changed. Even though she herself was not, you know, sort of academy trained scholar, did all this important work on Alcott. A lot of the fun of those collections is her explaining the process of finding everything because nothing was in print, right? Obviously, nothing was digitized yet. And I do sort of wonder about the hiding in plain sight piece of it. 
But then also, I, I do think there's been resistance to, I don't know, you know, <laughs> that's something you want to talk about, too, to, to thinking yeah. about Little Women itself, right, as a trans text, because <laughs> there's been a kind of whole history of feminist criticism and feminist literary criticism. You can sort of see it in terms of the response to Little Women from the 70s forward. And this idea that what if the most beloved girl in American yeah. literature, what if they're not a girl at all. What does that mean? I mean, obviously, that's something that I am well acquainted with. (laughs) You know, just in like feedback I've gotten to this project and to my writing about Alcott. So we get three camps. The one camp is like, wow, cool. (laughs) And that's my favorite camp, (laughs) not surprisingly. And then the people who object, they kind of fall into just straight up conservatives who are like, how ridiculous. Being trans isn't even a thing. And within that, curiously, we also get some people being like, this is lesbian erasure. <laughs> right. Even in the Fox News crowd, we get, obviously, you're looking at evidence of a lesbian, not a trans person, which is, it's curious that's made it all, all the way over to the far right. And then beyond, so, so we have just the kind of the conservative reactionary camp, which reacts the way you might expect it, the suggestion that any historical person was trans, which is, I have all this evidence that this person was trans. And you look at that evidence and go, no, she wasn't. <laughs> like that's, and then in the this other this third camp is more we might call it the moderate camp, and they're like, well, who can really say for sure? We don't want to label people. It's better to have this to preserve this ambiguity. And I appreciate where that camp is coming from, but I also, having read the history of queer scholarship in general, something that made me think about this recently. I was writing a paper on. Walt Whitman and found a an essay from the early 2000s by a gay scholar. He was reviewing a work by another scholar and he was like, I kind of thought we were over tiptoeing around the fact that Whitman was gay. I think it's important that we be able to say, yeah, Whitman was gay. And it doesn't matter that the word didn't exist in his time because yeah. he liked to have sexual intercourse with men, right? Yeah. And so I, while I appreciate kind of, it can be anything to any people and we shouldn't label, I'm like, well, okay, but... <laughs> I think it's important that we at least be able to say the word trans here or the word lesbian or to be able to talk in explicit terms about what is happening here. And I think that this enigma certainly is a trans story. It's very hard to argue that it isn't. It's part of a trans lineage. It's the cross-dressing doesn't merely function as trickery or deceit, right? It's not in service of a transphobic narrative where Bernard turns out to be a murderer, (laughs) you know? Yeah, Kind of Alcott's most villainous characters kind of tended to be these women temptresses, deceivers, which is interesting. She puts that in cis womanhood. We can, we'll set that aside for now. That's not what we're talking about. But I think it's important to just be able to say, yeah, this is a trans story. You talk about the trans feeling of this work, right? Even though we don't, they wouldn't have had the term trans or transgender or transsexual. Alcott knew the feeling that those words described. And those words came into existence to describe the feelings that people like Alcott had, right? Yeah. The first thing I was going to... You had so much good stuff in there. The first thing I was going to mention is just the idea that... I think I say it in the essay to Mm -hmm. say that... So, for example, Joe. To say that Joe is trans (laughs) doesn't not make her a lesbian, right? This idea that everyone gets both a gender identity and an (laughs) orientation. Yeah. And all kinds of people can claim that word, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that if she's trans, it's not describing her orientation. That's not describing her outward directed desire to other people. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm really with you on this. I think sometimes the words didn't exist back then. We can't say them. Mm-hmm. In some time, like I have lots of historian friends who are historians of sex and sexuality who are brilliant mm-hmm. at talking about the ways that we don't want to be presentist that we need to look at things within their own context. And I get that, but I think that it often, as you pointed out, it really can be used as a dodge to not talk about things you don't want to talk about. (laughs) And if the status quo is erasing and hiding queer people, which it still is, you need to ask what's at stake. That's why I say in the issue, so much of Alcott criticism has foreclosed even on the possibility of trans, right? I'm not so arrogant to say, I know Alcott was this. I have no right to do that. I am that arrogant. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> what said, I mean, we can ask so much in terms of LGBTQ politics like that, but how does it hurt you that th- there's a yeah. possibility this 
fictional character who, again, on the first page of the book says, I can't get over the disappointment in not being a boy. Yep. (laughs) All these sort of layers of subtext and meaning. Listen to what Joe is saying. It's right there on the page. It's so you quote this one scholar who it's very funny. It's like, you know what? Joe is never masculinized or made a lesbian. I'm like, what book did you read? Joe is never mad. She cross dresses as a man in chapter two. That's just flatly untrue at a certain point. Yeah. I mean, I sort of, again, part of this is the history of, you know, women being critics in the academy. So I don't want to excuse that statement, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the sort of second wave feminists who see in Joe Mm -hmm. this sort of feminist heroine Mm -hmm. from white middle class women, second wave feminists who maybe didn't right bring in or collaborate with black women or queer women the way they should have (laughs) to have been accused of being a lesbian right was you know you had to sort of uphold certain standards of femininity there weren't many academics until very recently but again through the criticism you can see everyone wants to see themselves in joe and if joe is different than you thought they were Because this text is so, I mean, that's what your podcast has done so beautifully. It's so (laughs) personal. No, but so one of your opening questions is, which marked sister are you? Right? This is not just a work of art. It's something else Mm -hmm. to so many people. So the stakes are pretty high. Yeah, people love this book, right? It is the er text on girlhood, which opens up this really uncomfortable question when we start to say, okay, well, but the main character doesn't want to be a girl. And what I say to that is, yeah, but the other three do, <laughs> you know? Yes, I see. I agree. Yeah. The argument that I get all the time is, you know, I, I present the archival evidence, right, from Alcott. And people say, well, what woman didn't want to be a man? Right. Women couldn't do this and this. I'm like, well, all of Alcott's sisters <laughs> wanted to be women and were, you know, certainly had their struggles, but were content in the role of woman, right? They did not ever express the same kinds of yearning to be men that, Alcott did. It was very unique even for that time period. I think there is a tendency to talk about being presentist. There's a tendency to project kind of the goals of the modern feminist movement onto the 1800s yes, and the different contexts there, <laughs> which is where we get, oh, Alcott just said that, you know, for instance, when Alcott wrote about, I long to be a man in the context of wanting to go fight in the civil war, they're like, well, now women can be soldiers. So that's what Alcott was talking about. I'm like, I think it's a bit more, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah. And we also can make space for that. This may have been confusing for Alcott, right? Oh, completely. So the idea that, I don't know, that these imaginary people that are bugging you, even when you show them the historical Mm -hmm. evidence is, you know, this sounds like it was a really difficult journey for her, right? Not not that our language now makes things simple for people, because it doesn't. But I feel like it's okay if there were times when she wasn't sure, or she was feeling pressure to conform. Do you know what I mean? All those things can exist. Yeah. Yeah. Alcott didn't have the ability to Google, am I trans quiz? That's something not... (laughs) Right. Or the YouTube videos of this is my Uh, first day on tea. This is my 50th day. I knew. And I... Boy, Mm -hmm. I would love a time machine to being Mm -hmm. able to say to her, you will not believe what is possible now. Yeah. We haven't solved every we haven't solved every problem, but there are possibilities now. And I mean, truly, even today, even speaking about my own transition, for a number of years, it was a very hard thing for me to wrap my head around, hey, you can maybe you're only attracted to men as a man. Maybe that is how we explain this part of your identity, which is as I was growing up, I had two boyfriends kind of in my adolescence, high school age, both of whom came out years later as gay. And I always talked about, isn't that so funny? And then kind of growing into my adulthood, I was like, oh, wait, this is a pattern. (laughs) Maybe you are attracted to men as a man. Maybe dating men as a man is the thing. And that was very difficult. I didn't have any cultural mirrors for that kind of thing at all in 20. 19, 2018, when I was having kind of these revelations, apart from my own friends and just people in my circles who were trans men dating men to kind of show me that it was possible. So how much more so for Alcott to kind of puzzle this through? Yeah, yeah. Right? 
man. No, but I mean, clearly we say she didn't have the vocabulary. She found the vocabulary in this story, right? Well, and some (laughs) critics argue this, some critics argue this about Whitman, but I think it would work for Mm -hmm. Alcott too, right? That in some ways, not having the vocabulary make, there are more possibilities then, right? Instead (laughs) of post-sexology, where at least we're in terms of orientation, now that's 100% of your identity, right? If you're a gay man, that's it. There's no other parts of you. (laughs) In some ways, they came up with more creative solutions that maybe are more fluid and nuanced than Mm -hmm. the ones we have. But I don't want to overdo the utopianism (laughs) of that either, right? Because there weren't social structures and there weren't necessarily communities that one could join. It was very difficult to find community. So, you know. Yeah, it could be very isolating, even when transcendentalism was perhaps more open to the notion of being a man in a woman's body or being a man-hearted girl to quote the father of this story. Now, very last question. I don't want to keep you here too much longer. Who would you cast in a film adaptation of Enigmas? Oh my gosh. What a great (laughs) question. Well, I feel like it's, it didn't, I feel like you'd have to say Elliot Page, right? I feel feel like his bio just came out. I haven't read it. Okay, good choice. But he has the kind of young, beautiful boyishness Mm -hmm. maybe that would work. I mean, I feel like- like that. Having said that, though, I don't think you could because it's very Mm, difficult. It's difficult to do a film with an unreliable narrator. You can do it, but it's really tricky. Do you hide in for because the we assume the camera's telling the truth. And so do you hide things from the audience like usual suspects or something like that? (laughs) And so I feel like it would be really tricky to do and to keep all the in terms of the Clyde ambiguity. Again, I don't think Noel is an ambiguous character, but I don't know how you do it in ambiguity. Just as far as the audience needs to be like, is is Bernard a... What's going on there? I, well, and I they like, have to yeah. make decisions about the expression, mm-hmm. right? So I note yeah. in the es- I note in the essay that Clyde in the beginning is like, oh, he had a faint trace of mustache, and at the end he's like, mm-hmm. the mustache is gone. And a filmmaker right. would have to make a choice about that being there or not being there. I think Clyde's making it up. Yeah. Like, I think he's seeing what he wants to see because he's so desperate <laughs> for Bernard to be a girl. Yeah, but a filmmaker would have to make a choice about that. Yeah. So I think obviously Elliot is a wonderful choice. I love Elliot. You know what's actually so funny? And I'm sorry, I'm digressing here a little bit, but my first book, Both Sides Now, my only book, Both Sides Now, what am I saying? (laughs) It began as in the very, the very seed of the idea was I want to do a trans Juno. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And it's so, now it's like Juno was trans on the bog. (laughs) And so kind of with that in mind, I think it would be very fun if we assume that Bernard Noel is the true identity and this person truly is a boy. I think it would be really fun to cast someone like Timothy Chalamet in that role. Oh, yeah. Right? And then in the grand reveal scene at the end, it's like Timothy is, quote unquote, a woman, but is playing the woman. And we understand the woman to be the natural state. But by that point, all we know is Bernard Noel, the man. And someone who's kind of an androgynous figure like that can kind of, I think, play both sides of that really and be in a really fun way. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, Timothy, obviously come on the pod whenever you want. (laughs) Love to have you. And then I think Clyde, did you see Triangle of Sadness? No. Okay. I love that movie. I think that the kind of hapless, bumbling male model from that movie would be a very good Clyde. And then I don't know who is our, who is our Clarice, but someone who's... I feel like, I don't know, I feel like lots of people could do Clarice, although I love this exercise, by the way, I often will do this with classes Mm -hmm. and say, okay, cast the movie because you get a real sense of whether they're under, whether they're understanding the characters in the way you think, you know, are we in the right place? I did that with Moby Dick last semester. It was really interesting. (laughs) Oh, that's who are the, who are the top choices for Moby Dick? I'm sorry. I'll let you go in a second. Oh, (laughs) yeah. I think we all agreed that Ahab was Willem Dafoe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then, well, we did Billy Budd at the end of the semester, and we were argued a <laughs> lot about who should be Billy Budd. And I rejected <laughs> most of their, I was like, no, not pretty enough. <laughs> so. I love that. All right. Well, Alice, I mean, thank you so much for being here. This has been so oh, much fun. This was, I'm so excited that you're so excited about this story because no one else has yeah. read it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now everyone go forth, read Enigmas, become the Enigmas Hive. Where can people find you online? How can they support you and your work? Oh, I'm not so much on social media. If for some reason someone wanted to contact me, you can find me on my university's website, SUNY Geneseo, G-E-N-E-S-E-O. 
No one is on Facebook anymore, so don't bother with that. And I find Twitter very overwhelming and I'm not there. So good luck finding me. (laughs) All right. Well, hunt her down if you can. (laughs) And as always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. You can also now find us on Instagram, uh, Joe's Boys Pod. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week. (laughs) 